In less than 24 hours, Donald Trump will make history again. And not the good kind. The lead starts right now. The former president, Donald John Trump, has arrived in Florida for his court date. Tomorrow he will become the first person who has held that office to ever be arraigned on federal criminal charges. We'll bring you the latest details emerging about what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. Plus, growing concern from law enforcement officials in Florida about the large number of Trump supporters amassing who could show up at the courthouse tomorrow as Trump and his MAGA loyalists employ some rather fiery, bellicose rhetoric. Then, one of the busiest stretches of highway in the United States is shut down in both directions after a section of Interstate 95 collapses in Philadelphia. What we're learning today about how long it could be to take, to how long it could take to repair that road. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today, of course, with our law and justice lead. Minutes ago, former President Trump arriving in Miami ahead of his historic court hearing tomorrow. Sources say Mr. Trump is expected to meet with his lawyers tonight and discuss building out his legal team with Florida-based attorneys. Security preparations are already underway at the Miami courthouse ahead of Trump's arraignment tomorrow afternoon. Sources say law enforcement officials are rather worried about the potential for large crowds of Trump supporters outside of the courthouse, given what happened on January 6th. Miami's mayor, Francis Suarez, held a news conference this afternoon to explain how his city is preparing for possible protests. We hope that tomorrow will be peaceful. We encourage people to be peaceful in, in them demonstrating uh, how, they're, how they feel. And uh, we're going to have the adequate forces uh, necessary to ensure that. After his court appearance, Trump is expected to give a speech. His public comments so far range from attacking the special counsel to pledging to stay in the 2024 race no matter what happens to much worse. CNN's uh, Paula Reed is outside the federal courthouse in Miami for us. Paula, in less than 24 hours, the former president of the United States will be in that building behind you. What is the scene like right now? Right now here, Jake, it's pretty calm and there's really not much of a visible security presence here. You can see some flimsy police tape uh, behind me. There are a few officers patrolling around, but certainly not the kind of preparations you would expect ahead of this historic arraignment. Though we are told by a source that the mood is changing and now they are beginning to prepare for the worst. The documents, whole thing is a witch hunt. It's a disgrace. It should never happen. Former President Trump arrived in Miami ahead of his historic arraignment tomorrow in federal court. With him was his personal aide and co-defendant, Walt Nada, who has been with him in Bedminster since the indictment came down. Trump will be staying at his Doral Golf Course, where he is expected to meet with his legal team, currently being led by white-collar defense attorney Todd Blanche, after the departure of his other top lawyers over the past few weeks. There are things in here that I think, you know, if if they have backup for, are certainly problematic. Trump is looking to bring in additional attorneys to handle the Florida-based case, but he has had trouble in the past hiring lawyers amid concerns about him paying his bills and firms worrying about alienating other clients by taking him on. 
in the court of public opinion. If even half of it is true, then he's toast. Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, who helped spin the Mueller special counsel findings in Trump's favor, said the indictment alleging his former boss mishandled classified information is damning. He's not a victim here. He was totally wrong. Uh, that he had the right to have those documents. Those documents are among the most sensitive secrets that the country has, and he kept them uh, in a way uh, at Mar-a-Lago that anyone who really cares about national security, would, their stomach would churn. But his staunch allies on Capitol Hill, like Senator Lindsey Graham and House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, jumped to Trump's defense. I think the espionage charges are ridiculous. If he wants to store material in a box, in, in a bathroom, if he wants to store it in a box on a stage, he can do that. On Tuesday, the former president will surrender to authorities, be arrested and booked before his arraignment where he's expected to plead not guilty. The case landed in Florida where the alleged crimes were committed after a year of prosecutors collecting evidence with a Washington, D.C.-based grand jury. But the South Florida venue poses challenges. The jury pool is likely to be friendlier to Trump. Because it's mine. It's mine. They took it from me. And even before trial, Trump's lawyers are likely to try to suppress key evidence from one of Trump's own attorneys, Evan Corcoran, who testified to the grand jury in D.C. and whose own notes are used in the indictment to make the case that Trump tried to hide incriminating documents. He made a funny motion, Corcoran noted, as though, well, okay, why don't you take them with you to your hotel room? And if there's anything really bad in there, like, you know, pluck it out. Tomorrow's arraignment will be before a magistrate judge, and then this case will be heard by Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump-appointed judge. And, Jake, we can expect that Trump's attorneys are going to want to revisit a lot of the questions over executive privilege and attorney-client privilege before Judge Cannon. One of the things they're going to try to argue is that the special counsel tried to resolve those questions before a more friendly judge in D.C., and they want to see those things relitigated. Even if the Trump team doesn't win, that could have the effect of delaying this case. Jake? Paul, stick around. Uh, What will the security look like when former President Trump arrives for his arraignment tomorrow in Miami? Let's talk to CNN's John Miller and Shimon Prokopas for some insight. Let's start with Shimon, who's outside the federal courthouse uh, in uh, Miami. Um, Shimon, just a short while ago, Miami's Mayor Francis Suarez and law enforcement gave some updates on their security preparations. We were talking to some national security experts here in studio who were shocked at what you were showing in terms of the lack of barricades Uh, And just the police tape there, given what we saw uh, January 6, 2021, uh, did these Miami experts give any specifics on what they're going to do if anything gets out of control? No, not really, Jake. I mean, they basically just say that we're ready. The Miami-Dade County officials, we just saw them a short time ago. Uh, They're asking us where we're hearing our information uh, that there is legit concern from law enforcement officials about the number of people who are going to show up here. It's not just because people are going to show up here. It's the fact that they're concerned that people who are going to show up here are going to try to start some kind of trouble like we saw on January 6th. And the feelings here are much different, Jake. And that's what I have found so striking are much different than what we saw when the former president appeared in Manhattan. And that could be because of where we are. We're in Florida, more supporters here. It could be the nature of the charges, much more serious. But there seems to be this feeling among law enforcement officials that things can get ugly here, that a lot of people will show up and they want to make sure that the local officials are prepared. 
And when I asked the mayor about this, he said, well, there's nothing to fear and that we're going to be ready. A little shocking to hear him say that. But I wanted to give you a look, Jake, across the courtroom, courthouse here outside, what it looks like. And, you know, you talk about uh, really the uh, non-existing security right now. Now, this could change. When you look around from our drone video here, you could see it's a very open area, Jake. Uh, and so basically right now, from everything we're told, now this could change that there are no plans to put any kind of metal barriers down like we have previously seen. And then, Jake, you could also see, here's that yellow tape all around the courthouse. I think you can see there, this is the entrance into the courthouse. This is where people go in. Uh, this is where the media is gathered, presumably, from everything we're told uh, that the supporters and protesters will be allowed to gather. We'll see how things change uh, as the hours go by and as we get closer to tomorrow. But honestly, Jake, there is some real concern here over the security preparations and this intelligence that officials are getting on the number of people who are going to show up here tomorrow. John, walk us through what Donald Trump will have to do uh, when he arrives at the courthouse. Well, when he gets there, he's going to become um, in the custody of the FBI. So that's the arrest process. So Secret Service will deliver him there. He'll come in through a garage entrance. He'll go up through the building. They'll introduce him to the FBI agents. They'll tell him he's under arrest. And then starts a very bizarre process, but not the first time for this former president. This will be the second time um, in as many weeks as he's been booked. But they'll go through a, a several-page form that they have to fill out uh, with his pedigree, then photographing him for the mugshot, fingerprinting him. Because he's a federal arrestee, they will have to take a DNA swab uh, using a Q-tip in his throat to take that swab. And then once all of that is out of the way, um, he'll have a place to sit with his lawyers until the case is called before the magistrate, which should be shortly thereafter. The wild card here is after the magistrate says he's free to go until the next hearing is, what happens outside? Right now, the plan is he leaves the way he came through the garage entrance and goes back to the airport and flies to Bedminster where he may have a gathering there. But it's still up in the air as to whether he's going to step outside and either address the press or address the crowds, which, as Shimon factors in, um, is the kind of thing that could change the tenor and tone of the event. So that's something that is still being worked out by staff and aides and something that's going to make a difference. A lot of differences between New York and Florida, in addition uh, to the sunshine laws, in addition to the jury pool, Shimon. Florida's gun laws uh, are, are pretty lax compared to New York, which has much more restrictive ones. And that's, of course, where Trump was arraigned for that different case in April. Yeah. Are, are there concerns, Shimon, about protesters who might show up armed? Yeah, I mean, that is certainly a concern because the laws here are so different. And uh, that is definitely a concern, Jake, right? The, the governor here signing uh, the laws and sort of giving more freedom uh, for uh, people to carry weapons. You can't open carry here technically, but certainly there's a lot more freedom when it comes uh, to, to carrying weapons. And that is something that law enforcement uh, is certainly concerned about. I don't know how much law enforcement here in Florida may be concerned about it. There's a different tone, right, between what people here on the ground are feeling and thinking versus people outside of here who are seeing the intelligence, 
who are reading information about the people who want to come here. They seem to be more concerned about what could potentially happen here versus the people who are actually on the ground here in charge of the security. So something's not kind of coming together here, and I think that's a little concerning. All right, Shimon Prokopez in Miami and John Miller, appreciate both of you. Thanks so much. Why bringing charges against Trump in Florida might end up proving problematic for federal prosecutors, plus a closer look at where the boxes were stored in Mar-a-Lago and when they were moved. Donald Trump has not been arraigned yet, but his indictment is already having a big impact on the 2024 race, how his Republican opponents are responding, including some new reactions this afternoon. Stay with us. And welcome back to the lead in our Law and Justice lead. We are learning more about the locations of the boxes that contain classified materials inside Mar-a-Lago and just how close they were to the public. Let's bring in former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, the indictment provides a a, a fascinating and rather disturbing timeline of of the movement of the documents throughout Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, Jake, these documents went on quite a journey which actually begins in Washington, D.C. One important, I think, mystery that the indictment addresses is when these boxes were getting packed up in the final days of the White House, the indictment alleges Donald Trump knew about that and oversaw it. There was some question before by some of his supporters, why would he be involved in the packing? The indictment alleges he was absolutely involved in that. Now, documents get shipped down to Florida, to Mar-a-Lago, and the first place they are stored is in this room, in the white and gold ballroom, and yes, That is a stage. That is where they are. And the indictment is, again, a little bit ambiguous. It says there were regularly events, weddings, fundraisers held in that ballroom. We see TikToks and stuff held in this, right? Donald Trump shows up, gives a speech. Exactly. So this is and what the indictment says is this room was in use at the time that they stored those documents there. Next, they get moved temporarily to a business center and then they land in. Yes, that is a bathroom. And yes, that right there is a toilet. That is a shower. That was their next destination in a place in Mar-a-Lago called the Lake Room. And then finally, and this is really the most important place where they land, these documents are moved to a storage room. Now, there's one incident Mm -hmm. in the indictment where one of the attendants goes in and finds classified documents. They're blurred out, but the indictment says highly classified documents spilled on the ground. And the indictment says that this is the storage room right here. And it says it was accessible by a hallway, which you could get to from, among other things, the pool patio. This is the pool right here, and it was often kept unlocked. And this becomes sort of a locus for the obstruction charges, because what happens is they get a subpoena from DOJ, they move the boxes into the storage room, they get a lawyer to go through it. But in the days before the lawyer appears, Trump has 64 boxes of documents pulled out of there, and only 30 returned, meaning when the lawyer did that review and ended up certifying this is all we had, 34 boxes of documents were missing. Yeah, and just a reminder, this is a hotel and resort. It is. This is not a a, a presidential enclave. It's a hotel and resort. Ellie, stick around. I want to bring you back in, uh, CNN's Paul Reed. Paula, our justice team is learning new details today about why special counsel Jack Smith ultimately decided to bring the charges in Florida, where you are, versus D.C., where we are. Jake, this has always been a big question for this case. You know that when you bring charges, you have to bring them in the proper venue. That means that there has to be some connection between the alleged criminal conduct and the location, the court where you're bringing a case. And in this case, we know that the grand jury was seated in Washington, D.C. So pretty much this entire investigation happened up in Washington. But really, the only true connection to D.C. is the fact that these records 
belong to the federal government, which is, of course, based in Washington, D.C. So eventually prosecutors realized that most of the alleged criminal conduct happened down here at Mar-a-Lago, so to bring the case down here in Florida. But that certainly poses some challenges for prosecutors. This is going to be a much more Trump-friendly jury pool. There's also a chance that Trump's lawyers are going to want to relitigate some of these privileged questions before this Trump-appointed judge who will oversee the case. While prosecutors now face a potentially less friendly jury pool in Florida, as Paula just re, uh, noted, um, this has also caused problems for Trump, the assignment of this case to Florida, because now he has to find lawyers who can practice in Florida, who have passed the bar in Florida. Yeah, so you are going to need somebody who's admitted to the federal district court in the southern district of Florida. But once you get someone to do that, they can then sort of make a motion, what we call pro hoc, meaning for this case only, to admit the other person. And a lot of times what you do in a case like this is you will hire someone called local counsel, meaning someone who just knows the turf there, who's known to the judges, who perhaps can speak to the jury in the type of language that they're used to hearing. So it'll be really interesting to see, is he going to base the, the defense out of New York lawyers like he usually does? Is he going to maybe team them up with local lawyers? But you do need some local input. Good news for him is a lot of New Yorkers moved to Florida. So I hear. Uh, Paula, one of the most damning parts <laughs> of the indictment uh, were the notes and testimony from Trump's own lawyer, Evan Co- uh, Corcoran. Uh, but now that these charges are in Florida, not D.C., can Trump's team try to get that testimony, since it has to do with conspiracy, uh, thrown out? Well, I think we can expect that they will try, Jake. I'm told that one of their strategies going forward is they are going to argue that the special counsel tried to litigate a lot of these questions about attorney-client privilege and executive privilege up in Washington before a friendly judge so they could get favorable rulings and get a hold of that evidence. They're now going to try to argue that these issues should be relitigated down here in Florida in front of the judge overseeing this case, Judge Eileen Cannon. Now, Jake, it's unclear if they're going to be successful in this, but what this could accomplish, even if they don't win on the legal merits, is this could delay this case. And as in any Trump case, he always wants to delay all court proceedings, but especially here as he's running for the presidency and likely wants to try to push this as close to the election as possible so that it's unlikely a trial will be held before the election. So explain, by the way, because this this is very complicated to a layman such as me. I'm just a humble caveman. But the idea that uh, Trump's own lawyers, his notes, right. were that the Jack Smith, the special counsel, was able to get them yeah. and use them against his client. So I would think all of that would just be protected by attorney-client privilege. And you're right as a starting point, right? So this is actually very rare. Normally, when an attorney and client interact, their communications are privileged, the attorney-client privilege. However, a prosecutor can break through that privilege if he can show something called the crime-fraud exception, meaning... Those conversations are evidence of some sort of ongoing crime involving at least one of the parties. And here it appears it's Trump, not Evan Corcoran. And Paul is right. This will have to be relitigated because DOJ went to a judge who was handling the grand jury and the judge agreed. You've established the crime fraud exception so you can use this information in your investigation. But A, we have a new judge here. And B, it's a different question because now the question is, can we admit this as evidence at trial in front of a jury. So they're going to have to relitigate that as DOJ, but it, it will help them that they already won the first time. But very quickly, yeah. how would they know about this? I mean, it, the, did Evan, Evan Corcoran say something to them? I and mean, how would they know? Yeah, it's a great question. They'd have to piece it together from outside sources. They could use things that Evan Corcoran sort of gave to them 
pending the outcome of this decision. In other words, if they had some basic information, they could go to a judge and say, we need more here. But you're right. It's difficult. That's part of the reason it's so difficult, because you need some way in to break that. How would they have any idea? It's fascinating to me. Ellie Honig and Paula Reed. Thanks to both of you. CNN was inside Trump's Doral property when the former president arrived just minutes ago. We're going to take a look at that moment next. CNN was inside Trump's Doral property when the former president arrived just moments ago. CNN's Randy Kay was there. Randy, tell us what happened. Jake, we were inside uh, waiting in the lobby and the Secret Service was there as well. Uh, They pushed everybody back to one side of the lobby and then they were going to bring in uh, Donald Trump to the side where the Secret Service was. Uh, Eric Trump was standing there in the lobby as well, waiting for his father. We got some video of that. Uh, There were also a couple of Trump, just two Trump fans uh, dressed out in all of the the mag, dressed up in all of the MAGA gear, wearing the hat, make America great again, etc. And then there was one guy dressed as Uncle Sam. The rest of the people in the lobby were just uh, just guests of the hotel. So the whole crowd really totaled maybe 10 people. And these people just said, oh, well, I guess we hear the former president's coming. We're just going to wait and hang out. They weren't especially uh, there just to see him. But then his motorcade arrived. Uh, they gave us about a five-minute warning. They pushed us all a little bit further back. His motorcade arrived. He came in with a huge entourage uh, just right through the front door of his uh, Doral uh, resort here that he owns and uh, waved to the group, said, uh, how are you all? Everybody doing okay? Uh, everybody in the crowd that was there to see him yelled, we love you, we love you, and, uh, and that was it. But uh, then he disappeared uh, through that side of the lobby where we did not have access to uh, with his son Eric and uh, followed by uh, a large group, uh, a large entourage as well. Uh, didn't really, didn't come over to the people who were there to see him. His mood seemed um, a bit, he just seemed a bit somber. He wasn't his usual uh, big smile with the wave to the crowd. He, was, uh, he seemed a little low-key. Uh, for Donald Trump. Jake? Yeah, he's got some big meetings uh, in terms of uh, his legal strategy and also picking his legal team. Randy Kay, thanks so much. Donald Trump railed against this 37-count federal indictment during a pair of campaign appearances over the weekend. Witch hunt, witch hunt, scam, hoax. It's called election interference, and they're doing the best they can with it. Among his 2024 Republican opponents, most seem to be siding with Donald Trump and condemning the criminal charges. Uh, let's discuss. Uh, Jeff Zeleny, let me start with you. So some notable exceptions uh, to the people siding with Trump and, and, uh, con- and criticizing the Department of Justice. Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. Asa Hutchinson, uh, former governor of Arkansas. Both of them slamming Trump, urging voters to take the charges seriously. Others trying to, uh, trying to walk this fine line of, of not... Um, going into uh, the charges specifically, but just talk saying in general, this they don't like this. But Nikki Haley, well, take a listen to her because she she seems to be changing her tune a bit. If this indictment is true, if what it says is actually the case, President Trump was incredibly reckless with our national security. More than that, I'm a military spouse. My husband's about to deploy this weekend. This puts all of our military men and women in danger. It's reckless. It's frustrating. And um, it causes problems. And, you know, we're looking now, this is the second indictment. We're looking at possibly a third indictment. So that's not what she said out of the gate. But that is, exp- that is I, ex- I think, what she actually thinks. I mean, it seems like it, of course. I mean, she on Friday, she called it prosecutorial overreach. What has happened since Friday? Well, a few other people have spoken out about it. One is former Attorney General Bill Barr. And he, uh, you know, calls it like he sees it, 
um, at least most of people who've known him for a long time say, and it, her words sort of follow that. But look, there has to be, uh, there is an audience in the Republican Party, in the Republican primary elected for people who do not like this. So I think that she's probably playing to some of that audience there. Uh, it's interesting b- because in the last indictment, uh, some of the candidates went the other way. They were critical initially out of the gate, and then they were slapped back, so they uh, reverted to uh, supporting him. So we'll see if others join her in the support here. But I think she also, interesting, went on to say there could be another indictment and another indictment. So she continued on uh, the the case here. But the Republicans I've been talking to, both in Iowa and New Hampshire today, uh, you know, they voted for Trump in the the first place, they believe this indictment is very serious. Now, most people are not going to read the indictment. I get that. But I think any early polling and things, we just have to wait and see how this settles in. So it's interesting. So Ron DeSantis, uh, Jamie, Ron DeSantis uh, said something along the lines of why is, why is there such a different treatment? Hillary Clinton gets off and Donald Trump gets indicted. And then he said, if I did what Hillary did, I would have been court-martialed with, you know, in a New York minute. Um, but it's also true, therefore although he didn't say this, yeah. that if he did what Donald Trump did, he would have been court-martialed in a New York minute. So what's his actual position? I, I, I don't know that he knows yet. And, and to Jeff's point, let's see what the polling says. They are sticking their toe in the water here. But I do think it's important to re- reiterate what former Attorney General Bill Barr said, because he was forthright. He said if even half of it is true... He's toast. It's a very detailed document, indictment, and it's very, very damning. But he's not running against Donald Trump. So, Ramesh, in a new CBS News YouGov poll conducted after the indictment came down, after Trump leads DeSantis by nearly 40 percentage points, 61 to 23, all the other challengers far behind in low uh, single digits. You see there Tim Scott, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley with 4, 4, and 3%. Um, When you're that far down, including, by the way, Ron DeSantis, don't you need to take a position about an indictment that is, by Bill Barr's own account, like pretty serious? I think that uh, it is quite clear that people have to actually take him on and make the argument against him if they're going to beat him. And we are beginning to see a little bit of that with Nikki Haley today. Um, But so many others are just so cautious, so afraid of alienating potential supporters who still like Donald Trump and still rally around him as though he's a victim. Ashley, play a game with me right now. Sure. <laughs> what if Ron DeSantis had been indicted? How would Donald Trump be treating him? What if Nikki Haley had been indicted? How would Donald Trump be treating her? He would be going straight after them. <laughs> he would be calling them criminals. He'd be saying, lock him up, lock her up, just like he did to any other opponent he often has. And I think it's interesting that the the race is still a long way. The prime, Republican primary is still a long way. And so people are hedging their bets. But, you know, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, your poll numbers haven't really moved by sticking with Donald Trump. So maybe try a different strategy to see if there is a part of the electorate that says, oh, I do want someone who has the courage to stand up to this bully. But Donald Trump would be all over this. I mean, he's he attacked some of them now and they haven't been indicted. He attacked Ted Cruz's dad for being a part of the Kennedy assassination. I mean, it doesn't even need to be grounded no in reality. Jamie Semaphore's Benji Sarlin writes this about the Trump indictment and the 2024 race. Quote, legally, his path to avoiding conviction has never been narrower. Politically, his path to the nomination looks wider than ever. You know, one would think that it would there would be some sort of correlation and causation there. 
There is not. When, <laughs> when, very simple. When, when he said the famous line about he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue, it, it appears to be true. I just want to say, talk a little bit about his attacks on uh, both Jack Smith, the special counsel, and the Justice Department. He goes on Truth Social and posts on a regular basis things like this. He called special counsel Jack Smith a terrorist, a slime ball. He called the Justice Department the Gestapo. Uh, he has all done everything he could to undermine the Justice Department, to undermine the rule of law, and everyone of his base they appear to be sticking with. Well, and on that note, Jeff, the new CBS News YouGov poll also shows 7% of likely Republican voters say the indictment has given them a worse view of Trump. Only 7%. 61% say it won't change their opinions. By the way, 14% say it gives them a better it gives him a better view of Donald. He's got Trump. those votes, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, look, I mean, that's uh, among people who he can't do any wrong. But look, I think once people uh, get a better sense of what is actually in the indictment and the argument from Nikki Haley about the military argument. Yes, right. my husband is about right. to be deployed this weekend. Uh, this is not just another. We talk about the boxes and things. What's in the boxes is what's important. What's inside the boxes in the bathroom is what's important. So I think once this filters through, I'm not uh, suggesting that people are suddenly going to abandon him. But I do think there will be a bit of a more diversity of thought on the Republican side. We'll see. Ramesh, what are you hearing from Republicans? Well, the one interesting thing, and it's actually reflected Mm -hmm. in that CBS poll, is that a lot of Republicans, they don't want to hear Trump defending himself Mm. or talking about this case. They're just sick of all of the drama. Now, this would be, you know, back... You and I go back long enough that we remember the days of Clinton fatigue with Clinton in the 1990s. And you do wonder whether there will at some point be something of a Trump fatigue where people decide they're tired of all this drama. What do you think? Is there ever going to be a Trump fatigue? Not for certain people, but I do think, look, I'm a Democrat and I think, you know, no, there's no question about that. But I actually believe in the American electorate. And I believe even in Republican voters, even though we don't agree on many issues, that, to Jeff's point, once more of this information comes out and people really understand what was at stake here, people will start to turn their backs on Trump. We'll see. Thanks to all for being here. Appreciate it. Tonight, join Anderson Cooper for a CNN Republican presidential town hall with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. We're going to have more on the upcoming Trump arraignment. But first, one of the busiest sections of I-95 collapsed in Philadelphia. And now we're learning both directions of the highway have to be demolished. What does that mean uh, for when the road will be fixed? And what are commuters supposed to do until then? Turning to our national lead, traffic chaos in my home commonwealth of Pennsylvania in the great city of Philadelphia after an overpass on I-95 collapsed yesterday morning in northeast Philly. The road was damaged by a burning tanker truck. Traffic in both directions of the very heavily traveled highway, which connects the mid-Atlantic states to New York City in the northeast, has to reroute. Today, officials said the southbound side of the overpass, which did not collapse, is also compromised and will have to be demolished. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the federal government is pitching in two, but... But just to be clear, clear, swiftly it is not going to be overnight. We're talking about major structural work. Major structural work needed. CNN's Danny Friedman joins us from Philadelphia in the Taconi neighborhood. Uh, How long are we looking at before the overpass can be cleaned up and rebuilt? 
Well, Jake, I think you heard right there, Secretary Buttigieg said that it's not going to be overnight, though they're going to work to get it done swiftly. I think the firmest timeline that we have is from Governor Josh Shapiro, who said yesterday it will be some number of months. But the governor said today that he uh, was signing a disaster uh, emergency declaration, which will basically free up some $7 million in emergency funds to speed up this process. But again, Jake, like you said, they still need to demolish the southbound lanes behind me uh, on I-95 before they can even begin to start thinking about rebuilding. That'll take a couple of days at least. Uh, Again, it's going to be a mess over here for at least a couple of weeks, if not months. And what's the cause of this? Yeah, so, Jake, we actually got new information just a few hours ago, finally, from state officials as to exactly what happened. It was the question that we've been asking for the past 36 hours. Basically, state officials say that a tanker truck driver was driving northbound on I-95 on Sunday morning. They tried to get off this exit onto Cotman Avenue, where we are right now. They took the curve and lost control of the truck. The truck then fell on its side and ruptured. And that truck, Jake, was carrying 8,500 gallons of gasoline. That's what caused that fire. And actually, we just got word from Pennsylvania State Police just a little while ago that one body was discovered in that wreckage. So we have more information as to how that uh, entire incident played out now today for you. What's the economic impact going to be? Because this is going to really, I can't even imagine what's going to happen for commuters or, or for truck traffic. Yeah, Jake, listen, uh, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation Excuse the sound right here. The Pennsylvania Department of Transportation, they said that about 160,000 vehicles go through this portion of I-95 every single day. Our CNN business colleagues say that about 14,000 are truck drivers. So there's going to be an impact there on commercial business. But the reality is there have been ways to get around. There's certainly 295, the Jersey Turnpike. I think one of the larger impacts business-wise is going to be here in this area of Taconi because these streets are just not used to having so many large trucks coming this way. And some of the folks who work right by where this crash happened. They say they're worried about their own commutes to work, how their customers are going to get back and forth. So that's kind of the impact that we're seeing immediately right here. Jake. All right, Danny Freeman in the great city of Philadelphia. Thanks so much. Ukrainian forces are seeing some wins in their counteroffensive, but there are some losses as well. That's next. In our world lead, without actually confirming its long-anticipated spring offensive is underway, the government of Ukraine says its forces are retaking some Russian-held territory. But as CNN's Fred Plykin reports for us now, these modest successes are taking a significant toll on Ukraine's Western-provided tanks and armored vehicles. Ukrainian military video purporting to show strikes on Russian positions behind the front lines. As Kiev says, its forces have dramatically ramped up their offensive operations, taking several villages over the weekend in the southeast of the country. This drone video, the Ukrainians say, showing their troops sweeping a settlement and taking several prisoners. The same unit displaying Ukraine's flag after the battle. They tried to push us back with their artillery, the soldier says. We managed to seize back the initiative and slowly liberated the settlement one house after another. While Ukraine says it's attacking the Russians in several areas of the vast front line, Kiev remains coy about whether the long-anticipated large-scale offensive has really begun. The head of Ukrainian military intelligence releasing this video of himself just sitting at his desk with a message plans love silence. 
But the Russians say they're holding the line in most areas. This defense ministry video allegedly showing a Russian chopper destroying Ukrainian reconnaissance vehicles. In total, the Russians say they've already destroyed a large number of Western-provided armor, including German-made Leopard 2 main battle tanks and U.S.-donated Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. But as Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, hands out medals to Russian soldiers, the infighting between Russia's military and the Wagner private military company continues. Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin refusing to abide by a defense ministry decree to sign a contract with the Russian army, saying his mercenaries are more efficient than regular troops. Unfortunately, most military units do not have such efficiency, he says, and precisely because Shoigu cannot manage military formations well. Balancing the rival factions in his war machine, a tall task for Vladimir Putin as the country celebrated Russia Day. Putin urging people to keep supporting his war in Ukraine while calling it a difficult time for his country. Russia is based on faith and people, he said. People who go from victory to victory, basing their lives and all their work on faith. Faith in victory, faith in justice, faith in Russia. But Jake, Russians' faith certainly is being tested at this point in time. The Ukrainians saying in the past week alone, they took back seven settlements from the Russians. It's not only the south of the country, it's the east of the country as well. The Ukrainians are saying they've made significant gains over the past couple of days in the Bakhmut area also. Jake? All right, Fred Plykin, thanks so much for that report. Also in our world lead today, the U.S. State Department confirming yet another American citizen has been detained by the Russian government. Images of the arrest of rock band manager Travis Leak showed up in the Russian media late last week. U.S. embassy officials were at a court hearing Saturday when Mr. Leak was arraigned on alleged drug charges, which he denies. Leak appeared in an episode of Anthony Bourdain's CNN show Parts Unknown in 2014. His arrest comes about three months after the Russians arrested U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovich accusing him of spying, which he denies. Donald Trump is now at his Doral Resort, Doral Resort, with just hours before his arraignment on federal criminal charges. This as we learn about growing security concerns outside the courthouse. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Right now, former President Trump is in Miami ahead of his planned arrest on uh, tomorrow. Uh, tonight, he's going to meet with lawyers at his Doral Miami resort and attempt to uh, bring new legal help on board, according to sources. Tomorrow, he's expected to surrender at a federal courthouse in Miami downtown where he'll be booked and hear the 37 counts relating to his handling or mishandling, allegedly, of classified documents. Meanwhile, the city of Miami is bracing for crowds to show up in support of the 2024 Republican frontrunner who is publicly maintaining his innocence despite the Justice Department's hordes of damning, blistering evidence. Let's get right to CNN's Evan Pettis in Miami. Evan, walk us through how tomorrow's arraignment might play out differently than we the one we saw in Manhattan two months ago. Well, Jake, first of all, uh, the fact the former president will be facing a hearing with his co-defendant, uh, that's uh, Walt Nada, 
Uh, we know that the former president will be brought into the courthouse. Uh, there's an underground entrance where the Secret Service can drive him into the building and then bring him up uh, to the upper floors where he'll be processed by the federal marshals. He'll be placed under arrest once he comes into the building and then the processing begins. It's a standard things. Uh, they're going to do an electronic fingerprinting of him. Uh, these usually involve photographs and certainly Fort Walton, not that we expect he's going to be booked uh, with a mugshot. The former president, of course, is very recognizable. And so we don't anticipate that the marshals will take new photographs of him. Uh, and then there, from there, he'll go uh, to the courthouse and a judge will read him the charges and he'll have a chance to enter his plea. The question of, of, of his release, uh, Jake, we know that we don't expect that he's going to be, there's going to be any, any issues with him being released. The issue uh, we expect, however, to come up is whether uh, he can communicate with anybody who might be considered witnesses. That's, of course, is an issue of witness tampering, which has been a concern in this case already, Jake. Evan, you also have some new reporting on why the special counsel, Jack Smith, decided to bring this case in Florida rather than in Washington, D.C. Yeah, the uh, special counsel's team uh, several months ago decided that they needed to prepare to bring this case in Florida simply because uh, Mar-a-Lago is located down here. Uh, it, it, they were concerned, obviously, that one of, the, one of the things of bringing this case in, in, in Washington was the issue of venue. And the fact is the former president left Washington uh, several hours before Joe Biden became president. And one of the things the Trump lawyers raised was the issue that he was still authorized to, to have these documents uh, for those several hours that he came down to, to Palm Beach and he was still president before uh, Joe Biden took the oath of office. So that was one of the things that uh, they decided finally, uh, again in recent months, uh, Jake, they needed to, to, to fix that situation by just bringing the case down here despite spending months collecting uh, evidence and testimony from witnesses in the grand jury in Washington. The question here, of course, is this is a uh, perhaps a, a friendlier venue for the former president. He won this state, of course. And uh, the other issue, Jake, is the question of, of, of whether they'll have to litigate again to use some of that really damning witness we saw, uh, I'm sorry, uh, testimony we have from Evan Corcoran, his attorney, who recorded some of the things that the former president was saying to him. All of that, of course, will play out over the next few months. Jake? All right, Evan and Pettis, thank you so much. Let's turn now to the security measures being taken surrounding Trump's court appearance tomorrow in Miami. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live from uh, Doral, uh, Florida, outside the Trump Doral Hotel. Uh, Carlos, um, city officials say they're working with all levels of law enforcement. Uh, we have heard that the Proud Boys, that far-right militia group, uh, they're expected to be there. Are, are police preparing to handle any potential violence? Well, if you ask that question to Miami's police chief, he would tell you yes. According to the chief of police out here, he says that they have enough resources and officers to deal with a crowd of up to 50,000 people that might show up to the federal courthouse tomorrow. Now, when pressed for specifics, the chief of police said that is something that his police department is not going to get into. There is a growing concern at this hour whether law enforcement across South Florida is ready to deal with the possible crowd of both supporters of the former president as well as protesters who might show up outside of the federal courthouse in downtown Miami. At this hour, there are few barricades outside of this courthouse, and it is still unclear whether Miami police plan to separate the supporters of the former president from the folks that are going to be out there protesting the former president. Here now is the chief of police at a news conference uh, earlier this afternoon. 
We're bringing enough resources to handle crowd anywhere from 5,000 to 50,000. We don't expect any issues, right? So we appreciate uh, the public self, everybody going out there and expressing themselves in a peaceful and civil manner. And so the chief of police really uh, pushed back on some questioning there about exactly just uh, where all of these resources are at this hour, when we might expect to see them outside of this courthouse. The chief ended up saying, look, a lot of these decisions we're going to make really will depend on exactly how many people turn out tomorrow. Uh, Jake, there was a, a, about a, a crowd of about 100 uh, Trump supporters outside of the Doral property out here earlier this afternoon. Uh, at one point this afternoon, some of those folks got out onto the street. However, uh, police here were able to get everyone back on to a sidewalk. Jake? Um, Carlos, have any officials noticed, noted any concerning signs uh, by extremist groups uh, online of possible threats? Well, it's our understanding, according to uh, law enforcement sources, that a group of FBI agents have been tasked with uh, going uh, across, uh, going through social media posts for any possible threats to the federal courthouse in downtown Miami. Uh, we're told that they're also taking a look at some communications between members of the Proud Boys uh, because they were talking about traveling to South Florida ahead of tomorrow. However, just about every law enforcement official that we've talked to, including the chief of police for the city of Miami, said that right now there are no credible threats to Miami. All right, Carlos Suarez in Doral, Florida. Thank you so much. Joining us now to further explain the security concerns over Trump's arraignment is Jay Johnson, former Secretary of Homeland Security during the Obama administration. Uh, Secretary Johnson, thanks for joining us. So Miami officials say they're prepared for tomorrow, but some of the officials, uh, former officials that we've had here in studio watching what's going on in Miami seemed alarmed, noting that there's just yellow tape uh, in some areas, a few plastic barriers, uh, but nothing like what we saw in New York. Um, given what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, given the calls to violence that we've heard uh, in the bellicose language uh, from many, many Trump supporters, including members of Congress, um, do you think that's sufficient or should they be barricading and preparing for the worst? Well, the downside to all this, Jake, is there hasn't been a whole lot of time to prepare for this. Uh, the indictment just came down late last week. Normally, in a situation like this, law enforcement wants a lot of time to provide adequate security. I am quite sure that right now, as we speak, uh, elements of the U.S. government, the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Marshals, Federal Protective Service, Secret Service, the FBI, along with local law enforcement in Miami-Dade, are, are thinking this through, are erecting our erecting hopefully the appropriate barriers. They know that community best. Uh, as you touched on it, I'm sure they're actively monitoring social media, but we do have to anticipate uh, a potentially large crowd here, particularly given some of the rhetoric from some of our so-called public officials over the last few days. But I've, I've been down to Miami-Dade to oversee active shooter training exercises. It's a complicated jurisdiction, but there's a lot of resources down there. Well, some of the rhetoric we've heard um, from members of Congress uh, and also from the Proud Boys and others are, are rather alarming. Um, now, obviously, people have a First Amendment right uh, to express themselves. And the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, stressed the importance of letting people use their free speech. Um, 
Is there a way, do you think, to, to keep this from getting out of control? Jake, that is probably my principal concern right now. Some of the rhetoric we've heard over the last couple of days has been over the top, dangerously irresponsible. As some of these extremists in public life seek to outdo each other. That kind of rhetoric makes unacceptable behavior acceptable and, frankly, violence inevitable. And, you know, I can understand the impulse of some of our leaders, some of our rational leaders to avoid engaging uh, and responding to this kind of thing. But I do think there comes a responsibility, frankly, uh, by federal officials who lead federal law enforcement to really speak out against this and call it out and say to those who are engaging this kind of dangerous rhetoric, uh, say if somebody gets hurt, we are going to, within the fullest extent of the law, seek to hold you uh, responsible. It is a federal crime to threaten a federal official in the conduct of their office. It is a federal crime to incite an insurrection. And so uh, we've got to look to not just the Proud Boys and those who are on the ground, who might be on the ground in Miami Day tomorrow, but also those who are frankly inciting and encouraging this kind of violence. When you look at the charges against Donald Trump in the indictment, uh, as somebody once charged with the safety of the American people, um, both at the Department of Homeland Security, but then also uh, prior in your career when you were uh, an undersecretary uh, at the Pentagon, um, how alarmed are you at the those classified documents um, being stored in such a reckless way uh, and being sh- shown off to uh, individuals uh, that are uh, just visiting Donald Trump? Well, in addition, Jake, I was also, years and years ago, a federal prosecutor hired by none other than Rudy Giuliani in Manhattan. Um, It's surreal to know that there are TS-level, highly classified, compartmentalized documents uh, lounging around in in bankers' boxes, in storage bins uh, at Mar-a-Lago that the former president, uh, it seems, showed off to various people. Um, We handle classified information in Washington in the most secure fashion, in skips. We don't talk about it outside of skips. And for Donald Trump to undertake to do this uh, is alarming. I'm concerned about the the fallout from this. You know, an interesting challenge, Jake, uh, when this case goes to trial, and I'm certain it will, will be how do you share this information with with 12 lay jurors who were randomly selected off the street. So they appreciate uh, the gravity of what uh, former President Trump has done. There's a procedure for doing this called SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act. But uh, to try to show redacted redacted versions of this stuff or substitutes, I think is going to be a challenge in this case. Former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, thank you so much. Hope you're doing well, sir. Coming up, one Trump loyalist keeps citing a Supreme Court case to to defend the former president. There may be several problems with that example. We'll tell you what they are next. Then a look at the real-world impact of classified material possibly landing in the wrong hands. Stay with us. Ahead of Donald Trump's arrest tomorrow, his most loyal allies are attempting to downplay downplay the incriminating indictment, including, of course, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan. 
The standard is clear. The standard is Navy versus Egan, a 1988 case, unanimous decision from the courts, uh, from the court that Justice Blackmun wrote, wrote the opinion. And it said the president's ability to classify and control access to national security information flows from the Constitution. He decides. He alone decides. He said he declassified this material. He can put it wherever he wants. He can handle it however he wants. That's the law. Now, it is true that that suddenly off-sided 1988 Supreme Court case does say it is the president's, sitting president's authority to, quote, classify and control access to information bearing on national security, unquote. But there are a few issues with what uh, chairman, the chairman there is saying. For, first of all, Navy versus Egan isn't really a case about a president's authority to declassify documents. That sentence is merely background in a case about a Navy contractor who lost his job because his security clearance had been revoked. And that narrow case is what the court decided on unanimously. And perhaps more importantly, Chairman Jordan conveniently glossed over the damning evidence that suggests that Mr. Trump knew he could, but did not declassify these documents while he was president. There's no evidence that we've seen at all that he declassified any of these documents while he was president. Let's talk about this and other defenses with CNN legal analyst Kerry Cordero and former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman. Nick, let me start with you. What do you make of this Navy versus Egan argument from uh, the chairman there? It has absolutely nothing to do with Trump's situation. All it stands for is this poor guy, Egan, uh, who had a criminal record and a drinking problem, was denied a security clearance to work on the Trident submarine program. It has nothing to do with what Trump did. In fact, um, what it does say, it it warns about giving untrustworthy people access to classified information, which applies in spades to Donald Trump. I mean, if you look at what he did with this material after he was president, that he held on to it when he had no right to do it, that he basically put it in his barroom, in his bathroom, uh, and in his living uh, quarters, uh, and, and and essentially lied and orchestrated a cover-up to keep the government from getting this material back. This case has absolutely nothing to do with any of these issues. In fact, it wasn't even unanimous, Jake. I think it was like there's four dissents in the case. But it all has to do with whether or not this poor guy who couldn't get a security clearance could appeal it to a special board. Kerry Cordero, uh, let's talk about Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. He took a different route in trying to defend Donald Trump. Take a listen. You got vice presidents, secretary of states and presidents handling this stuff. You had Bill Clinton with tapes in his sock drawer. I would like to review the system, but here's the point I'm trying to make. I think the espionage charges are completely uh, wrong, and I think they paint an impression that doesn't exist. This is not espionage. I mean, here's, these are lawyers, so I mean, they know what they're saying is crap, but, but explain to us about the Espionage Act. Right. Okay. So there is uh, a set of statutes under federal criminal law generally known as the Espionage Statutes. Within those, and those are the statutes under which individuals who actually engage in espionage, spying for foreign governments, that is the set of laws that they're charged under. It also has the set of provisions of law that individuals who are charged with mishandling classified information, or in this case, willfully withholding national defense information, 
are also charged. It's interesting the argument Senator Graham makes. Sometimes there are individuals, uh, defense attorneys or individuals who are whistleblowers and uh, reveal information to news sources who later argue that this this type of mishandling or turning over classified information shouldn't be prosecuted under the espionage statute. And that's a legitimate argument. And so that is an argument that some in the legal community or the advocacy community make. Um, But in this case, former President Trump hasn't been charged with spying for a foreign government or espionage as we normally think about it. But he has been charged with willfully withholding national defense information, which is the way that a case like this is normally charged. I mean, these very weak and misleading arguments right out of the bat by Lindsey Graham and uh, Jim Jordan would seem to suggest they really don't know how to defend this, if at all. Well, and also there is no one arguing that a president, going to Jim Jordan's points, nobody is arguing that a president, a sitting president, doesn't have the authority to classify and classify information. Like, there is no argument in the legal community about that that it's commander-in-chief, commander-in-chief authority. The difference here is that there's no evidence it ever happened. And, And Nick, there seems to be a pattern emerging of Trump's own lawyers leading investigators to key information. You had the Manhattan indictment with Michael Cohen, now you have Evan Corcoran. Uh, now you say Corcoran was probably the source of the search warrant after he realized he was being played by Trump. That's a, that's a theory. We don't know that uh, as a fact as of now. But how? Well, I think I, go I ahead. think I'm right um, because there's no other way. First of all, to put that into a search warrant, the probable cause for this obstruction had to come from an inside witness who laid it out. You don't s- conduct a search on a former president's residence without having a real solid probable cause. You're not going to put in circumstantial evidence. And certainly um, Corcoran was in a position where he had to realize at some point that there were 30 boxes that were hidden from him that he didn't get to look at. And so he is a logical person that was the inside source that gave this to the FBI. And I might also add, in terms of lawyers, and and the reaction to Trump and and what they've done. Uh, You've also got John Eastman in the Georgia case, who uh, also had one of his emails um, produced to the January 6th committee uh, because of a statement in furtherance of a crime as opposed to attorney-client privilege, where he admits that Trump knows he's filing an affidavit in federal court in Georgia that's full of lies about the election being rigged. So we do have this pattern running throughout these cases where one of the chief witnesses against Trump in each of these cases is really his own attorneys. Nick Ackerman, Kerry Cordero, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, Republican lawmakers returning to the Hill today. Who is staying mum on the Trump indictment and who is talking? That's next. In our politics lead, lawmakers are returning to Capitol Hill for the first time since the federal indictment of Donald Trump on 37 criminal charges. House leaders have largely been rushing to Trump's defense, Republican ones. But in the Senate, it's kind of a different story with leading Republicans largely remaining mum. CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raja joins us now live on Capitol Hill. Manu, 
You've been talking to lawmakers as they make their way back into that domed building. What are they telling you? Yeah, some of them still don't want to comment, like Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who has not said anything about this indictment since the news first broke late last week. But I did catch up with a number two Senate Republican, John Thune, who has also been quiet about this up until now. He said that these are serious allegations, and he did not align himself with House Republican efforts to try to discredit the special counsel and and go after the Justice Department, even as others rushed to Donald Trump's defense. Well, they're very serious allegations, um, and the, the burden of proof for the Justice Department will be high. Um, I think there are a lot of people across the country who have skepticism about um, the standards of justice and how they're applied and wanting to make sure that they're applied equally. It says that he may have obstructed this investigation, made false statements to prosecutors. Does that worry you? No, I don't know anything about that now. Uh, eventually, they, they obviously got what they wanted. I don't know whether he obstructed or not. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be pulling out the drapes and the curtains for a new FBI building right now. So that last point from Congressman Kelly Armstrong about what the FBI has been pushing for, a new building, a new headquarters in the Washington, D.C. area. Both him and Speaker McCarthy both indicating that that won't go forward and expect other efforts to try to go after the Justice Department to come from the House side of the aisle. Some of them trying to go after the Justice Department's funding, but the leadership on the Republican side has not embraced the efforts to so-called defund the Justice Department or the FBI, but could go after the FBI headquarters. This is all House Republicans are trying to call in to get information from Merrick Garland about the communications that he had with the special counsel ahead of the search at Mar-a-Lago. But Jake, a clear split between the top two Republicans on the Senate side who have stayed quiet or been, or been said these are serious concerns, as John Thune suggested, and Kevin McCarthy, who has defended the president vocally. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. We are just a few hours away from a CNN presidential town hall with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and CNN's Omar Jimenez is following that for us. Omar, Governor Christie's been rather scathing in his criticism of the front runner, former President Donald Trump. What are you expecting to hear tonight? Yeah, Jake, I'm told to expect him to be direct when it comes to Trump, but also to emphasize a theme that we heard when he announced his campaign, that the country has a choice between getting bigger and getting smaller. I was at that campaign kickoff event less than a week ago at this point, and he took voters through time after time in U.S. history, going back to the Revolutionary War, where he felt like the country chose to get bigger. Under Trump, he feels the country would get smaller. And on Trump, who, of course, he was once allies with, he has not shied away from attacking him. Take a listen to why, because he's been very clear about that. The reason I'm going after Trump is twofold. One, he deserves it. And two, it's the way to win. There are not multiple lanes to the Republican nomination. That is a political science professor's dream. There is one lane to the Republican nomination, and he's in front of it. And if you want to win, you better go right through him. Now, polling, at least up to this point, hasn't shown Christie at the top of any GOP list. So they obviously know they have work to do. But if part of the campaign strategy is to show why Donald Trump is unfit to run the country, I I think this is over the past week. News of the Trump indictment has given the Christie campaign about as much ammo as you could ask for over the course of an indictment. I mean, you talked to him, uh, Jake, after the indictment was unsealed, and he wasn't shy about saying that this shows why Trump is unfit to lead the country. So we'll likely hear more of that in that town hall, but also some pro-Christie positions, not just anti-Trump in this, in this environment that he's gotten very comfortable in the town hall.
Omar Jimenez, thanks so much. And you can hear more from Governor Chris Christie during his town hall here on CNN this evening. Join Anderson Cooper. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern only on CNN. Let's talk about what's going on in politics now with Charlie Savage of the New York Times and Jackie Kucinich of the Boston Globe, also a CNN political analyst. Uh, Jackie, take a listen to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy earlier today addressing the criminal indictment. I want to get your reaction to part of what he had to say. Was that a good look for the former president to have boxes in a bathroom? I don't know. Is it a good picture to have boxes in a garage that opens up all the time? A bathroom door locks. The garage, uh, obviously, that's a reference to some documents that were found in Joe Biden's uh, right. home. Um, a bathroom door locks. That's, a, that's the security we need for our national security documents? Well, I think he's not addressing what the indictment says, which is why you hear Republicans like Kevin McCarthy attacking the DOJ, attacking the FBI, attacking everyone else so they don't have to address what are some pretty damning allegations in throughout that indictment? And it's one of these things. If you do that old test, if, a de- if this was a Democrat, they would be screaming from the ceilings. And of course, we should say the difference between Biden having those documents in his garage and what Trump did, according to this indictment, is he tried to keep them and lied about it. Right. And we did hear, uh, Charlie, a lot of outrage from Republicans like Kevin McCarthy, like Elise Stefanik, like Steve Scalise, and on and on and on. When it came to Hillary Clinton uh, having classified documents on her private email server, uh, this case is significantly different. It's significantly worse. Uh, and yet they have a completely different standard. Well, I think the way to understand why the House leadership in particular, as opposed to the Senate leadership that we just heard Manu talking about being more circumspect, is so forward leaning here, has to do with the fractures within the Republican caucus right now in the House. Kevin McCarthy cannot do anything on the House floor because his hard right flank is in open revolt, is punishment for how he muscled through the debt ceiling lifting deal with Biden. They're they're furious about it. They won't let anything happen. The whole House is shut down. So this is a way in which he can try to get right with the right wing by being out there really, uh, you know, waving the bloody shirt on the Trump indictment. Uh, But it doesn't really... uh, speak to the substance of what's going on here and the real legal peril that Trump is in in that courtroom in Florida. Game and out for me, Jackie. If Kevin McCarthy said anything along the lines of what we heard from Senator John Thune, these are serious charges. This is very serious. I take this, I take this seriously. Like, you know, n- nothing excusing the behavior, et cetera. What would happen to Kevin McCarthy? I can only imagine that uh, the former president would not be pleased with this. This is the Speaker of the House whose future is very much tied with the former president, which is why he was one of the first major public officials to go down to Mar-a-Lago after January 6th. He asked for his help to become speaker. He needs Donald Trump as much as Donald Trump, I guess, needs Kevin McCarthy to you know, push what he needs him to say at this point. What, you can't have one without the other. So, Charlie, one of the main arguments that we hear from Trump and, and, uh, and some of his rivals for the Republican nomination, not to mention Trump's allies, is that the Biden administration has weaponized the Justice Department against him. There's a whole uh, committee uh, that the Republicans started to talk about, the weaponization of government. Trump today uh, posted on Truth Social, quote, I will appoint a real special prosecutor to go after the most corrupt president in the history of the USA, Joe Biden. So um, I guess they don't really have a problem with the weaponization of government. Is that how I'm supposed to read that? (laughs) Your weaponization is my ally, I guess. You know, this is part of the Trump playbook 
going back to the, you know, the Russia investigation, the original stuff, there, there's nothing legitimate here. There must be politically motivated. There was no reason to open this investigation. It's a witch hunt. He, I mean, he says it openly. This is just a continuation of the witch hunt. Uh, and at the same time, uh, back when they were in charge of the Justice Department, appointing John Durham, who ends up trying to you know, say that Hillary Clinton somehow framed him for Russia uh, in the report that didn't actually bring charges for that. Uh, so there's a there's a, a whataboutism or a, a, a I, you know I'm rubber in your glue element to all of this noise that is just filling the airways right now, uh, but it doesn't really get to what's happening. And, and Jackie, uh, after the uh, Alvin Bragg uh, New York DA uh, charges and indictment against Donald Trump, we did see a real rally round the flag uh, sentiment among Republicans. Um, and you know to be frank. You know, it's not the strongest case in the world. We've noted that on this show before. A lot of legal experts talking about uh, how they didn't think it was that strong, how there are questions about politicization. Um, do you think we're going to see that even more with this or, or the charges here so serious it's going to be perceived differently? I mean, look no further than the Republican field, other than perhaps Chris Christie or Asa and Hutchinson. Hutchinson. And Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley. But, but, yeah. but I think the vast majority are not coming after uh, Donald Trump for this, but also we had reporters, uh, the Boston Globe had reporters in New Hampshire over the weekend, and you had voters there, again, small sampling, but you had voters there saying, you know, I'm, I, I was thinking about DeSantis, but now I think I'm back with Trump because the DOJ is going, because the government's going after him. So it, 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 you might see a bit more, it's early polling at this point, but it uh, looks like we're seeing it again. We did see some, again, not, not the same thing, but we did see some rally around the flag with Bill Clinton also when charges were brought against him when the impeachment, et cetera. Again, I'm not saying it's the same thing. All right, Charlie and Jackie, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just how damaging could it be to the United States if those classified documents, such as the one you're, ones you're looking at right now, got into the wrong hands? We're going to explore that next. And we're back with our law and justice lead in the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump. Trump is, of course, accused of mishandling classified documents after leaving office. He allegedly stored secrets on Topics such as the country's nuclear capabilities in places such as this bathroom in Mar-a-Lago, a hotel and resort. Joining us now to discuss the seriousness behind it all is Jamil Jaffer. He's the executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason uh, University. Jamil, thank you so much for being here. So let's go over this. In the indictment, there's a table listing out 31 classified documents Trump kept at his Florida Mar-a-Lago property. Um, 21 of those were marked top secret, which the federal government defines as exceptionally grave damage to national security should the information be exposed. What types of consequences are we talking about here? Well, you think about it, right? It's not just the the top secret documents. There's another 10 of them that were class, that were compartmented, sensitive compartmented information. That means signals intelligence, human intelligence, and the like. On top of that, another eight in special access programs, so sensitive that the actual trigraph, the descriptor of what kind of classified material it was, is redacted out of the indictment. So we're talking about some of the most sensitive secrets the government has, some most sensitive collection methodologies. So simply you know, putting those in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, putting them on a stage at Mar-a-Lago, any of that, that's all crazy. These things are supposed to be kept in a sensitive compartment information facility under lock and key with, a, with, a, with an armed guard response right outside. And, and that we should note the classification codes uh, ex- uh, on these documents included NF, which means no foreign, which means informational information cannot be released to foreign nationals. Anyone right. not American, SI, special intelligence. These are some of the just some of the codes listed next to the 31 documents. Uh, are there any that, that jump out to you in addition to the one that, that you couldn't even give the whole name of the file because of the top secret code word? 
um, that that could really harm national security, could actually put people's lives in danger. Sure, there's some that are marked HCSP, Human Control System Product. That means the product of some human intelligence source. It's something a human who's in place in a foreign country giving us secrets from that country that is included in there. That means if that information is revealed, that country could know who that person is, take action against them, arrest them, even kill them. We don't know anything uh, in terms of who saw these documents other than what's in the indictment in terms of him showing the document that supposedly shows battle plans, U.S. battle plans for attacking or invading Iran, uh, and then another document that was a military map of some way. But obviously this was not a secure area, Mar-a-Lago. And we know just from news reports of two Chinese nationals that were caught on property. One of them, I think, was deported to Hong Kong. Uh, We know of a woman who was like a, a con woman of some sort, pretending to be a member of the Rothschild clan. I mean, I would think if I were a spy with North Korea, Russia, Iran, China... And Donald Trump went down there. I would think this is a target-rich environment. I don't think it's a coincidence that two Chinese nationals showed up there. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think that uh, as we look at this, we'll see that there is evidence of, of foreign nationals trying to access the facility. Not necessarily because they knew the classified documents were there. We didn't know. They may not have known. But they saw this as an opportunity to talk to people who had clearances, talk to people who might have had sensitive information and the like. And so I think we'll find that out, that that was actually the case, that intelligence officers targeted the Mar-a-Lago compound going forward. But even beyond that, the real problem here, this is the kind of material that you store in a room under lock and key inside a safe, inside a room that's alarmed with, with, with baffles around to prevent signals from getting out, and an armed guard response right outside if the, if the, if the room is breached. None of that, not even close to that, was President Mar-a-Lago. And, I mean, we, we saw a Nikki Haley today talking about how her husband, who's in the South Carolina National Guard, is going off to Africa. Right. Uh, and, like, this is the kind of thing that could put... I mean, she implied his life in danger. That's true. Absolutely. These, these special access programs are just the kind of programs that protect information about deployments just like that. These military maps that the president apparently showed people who didn't have security clearances, these military battle plans, these are exactly the kind of things that put American service members' lives and intelligence officers' lives at risk, not to mention the human control stuff that puts our assets, people who are spying for us in foreign governments, at risk as well. All right, uh, Jamil Jaffer, thank you so much. Uh, Good to have you on. Also in our Law and Justice lead, a multi-million dollar settlement. A major bank will pay Jeffrey Epstein's victims. That's next. J.P. Morgan Chase has tentatively agreed to settle a lawsuit brought by the survivors of sex offender Jeffrey Epstein for $290 million. Epstein died in prison. Soon after he was arrested in 2019, his death was ruled a suicide. The class action suit claims that the bank did business with Epstein for years, despite internal concerns that he and reports that he was sex trafficking teenage girls and young women. CNN's Kara Scannell is following this case. Kara, how will this money be split up? Well, Jake, yeah, $290 million. That's the amount that the bank has agreed to pay in this settlement. And this stems from a lawsuit brought in November by a Jane Doe. And she alleged that the bank turned a blind eye to a number of red flags, among them 
large cash withdrawals, which in one year totaled more than $750,000. That is how authorities have alleged that Epstein paid both the minors, the underage girls that he abused, as well as those who recruited them. So David Boyes, a lawyer for one of the victims, has said that he expects more than 100 survivors to seek compensation as part of this settlement. Uh, but the exact number is not yet known. That is all something that will be worked out. The Boyes did call this a great day for survivors of Epstein and for justice. Now, a federal judge still has to approve the settlement. And as part of it, the bank will not admit or deny any wrongdoing. Jake. Well, that's the thing, because J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, he denies any real-time knowledge about his bank's internal concerns over Epstein. Um, but the bank still faces legal problems despite today's settlement, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Diamond sat for eight hours of a deposition last month saying that he did not know anything about this real time. But there is also still a lawsuit brought by the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands. That's where Epstein owned an island and a property where a lot of this alleged sex trafficking took place. So they have sued the bank for the same thing, saying that they overlooked all of these red flags and that they didn't flag any of these suspicious transactions to authorities, where if they had, it's possible the authorities might have been able to stop the sex trafficking operation. So that lawsuit still goes forward. It's pretty heated back and forth in the court filings there, but that one is moving forward as well. And the bank is also suing one of their top executives who at the time had had a connection, a friendship with Epstein. So a lot of litigation here still continuing. Jake. Yeah. The question, of course, did they overlook it or was there just a lot of money that got in their eyes? Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A gruesome Google history is emerging in the case of that Utah mom accused of murdering her husband and then writing a best-selling children's book about grief. Stay with us. Also in our law and justice lead, a judge today denied bail for the woman who, following the death of her husband, wrote a nationally respected children's book about dealing with grief. Authorities now say that Corey Richens' husband, Eric, died because she murdered him. CNN's Camila Bernal has been through the latest court documents and watched today's court session, among other things, Richens used her iPhone to search for, quote, what is a lethal dose of fentanyl? Really? Yeah, and that is just one of the many chilling searches that were revealed. Uh, prosecutors say that this all happened after she gave her husband a lethal dose of fentanyl. And among those searches were not just the question that you just asked, but also things like, can cops force you to do a lie detector test or luxury prisons for the rich in America or death certificates say pending? Will life insurance still pay? There were many, many of these questions. And the prosecution put a number of witnesses on the stand today, including the people that went over the searches, that looked at the data, that looked at her movements the day that he died. And also a financial expert was put on the stand to talk about the debt to talk about the life insurance policy money, the fact that she got about $1.3 million after Eric's death. So the prosecution pointed to that as essentially the motive here for uh, his death, for the killing of Eric. And the defense also putting uh, essentially their arguments out in the open for the first time through these documents and this hearing, uh, saying essentially that being bad with money doesn't force someone to kill someone or doesn't make you a killer. Also saying, that the testimony 
from the drug dealer has evolved and saying, uh, look, she essentially doesn't make sense and she's being told what to say by officers. Uh, and it was really interesting to see here the judge denying her request for bail, uh, but also saying and citing a lot of the uh, prosecution arguments and evidence. Now, it is important to point out uh, that Eric's sister also gave an impact statement and she just said that she is devastated as well as her family and asked the judge to protect their children, Jake. It's uh, just a horrifying story. Uh, Camila Bernal, thank you so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite. And I'm back on the TikTok. That's all at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you after the town hall with Chris Christie, which is tonight at 8 with Anderson Cooper. See you then. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.